So um, it's really, really, really great and exciting to be here. And thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I, I, I have to admit, I, I, it's, I was surprised that it's almost summer and I'm in Europe. And I, I didn't bring a hat and I've gotten a little bit of a cold. So if I cough, please excuse me. Um, is there a way to turn down the lights a little bit, maybe? Um, so uh, I guess I'll just jump in. I, I, my interest in art and photography kind of began before I was born uh, with uh, this, uh, an encounter my mother had with this book called The Sweet Flypaper of Life by uh, Roy de Carava and Langston Hughes. She was a 12-year-old little girl uh, um, in Philadelphia Public Library. And it was her first time seeing um, images of African-Americans presented kind of as quote-unquote normal people in everyday life in ways that she'd seen them in contrast to the images that she'd seen um, in, you know, in history and popular culture. And c that led her on a lifetime journey to kind of really investigate the history of photography and representations of African-Americans. And her first, this is me and her, um, kind of <laughs> along that journey. Um, and in, um, I was going through her stuff not long ago, and I found uh, this research paper that she'd written a proposal for in 1973, so three years before I was born. And it says, I found no standard art history that refers to any Afro-American artist. References have led me to more references, which are scanty. I have written 50 letters to, to possible resources and have enthusiastic feedback um, by receiving letters and extending invitations to visit special collections and libraries. And she wants to do an independent uh, photography project and the contribution of African Americans from 1840 to 1940. Um, that um, research project went on to be her first book, which was uh, Black Photographers, 1840-1940 of Biobibliography. And then she's since published almost three dozen books and has won all kinds of awards and, and, and things like that. But what was really fascinating for me is really thinking about um, how she, as a student, basically just start, started to create a whole, um, um, a, almost a whole field of history and, and looking at um, how we can recontextualize and re-understand the world by thinking about how African Americans were invested in investigating in the, the, you know, some of the more complicated science and intellectual pursuits of their time even before the end of slavery um, and kind of what that says about kind of agency um, and the consciousness of African-Americans at the time. Um, and so I, I really do see myself as following in her footsteps. And sometimes we make work together. This was a piece we did together uh, in a show called Progeny. And the piece is called Sometimes I See Myself in You. Uh, because as was mentioned, I went to um, NYU for uh, photography for my undergrad. And three years after I graduated, my mother uh, became was, was hired and became the chair of the program in photography and Africana studies. So I like to say I paved the way for her. Um, but an, another thing that really kind of links back to kind of my understanding of kind of history and archive, I frequently, having grown up, she worked at the Schomburg Center for Research and Black Culture for about 13 years th throughout my childhood. And so she was a curator of photographs and prints and so that, and a curator kind of I kind of, through osmosis, kind of gained appreciation for critical thinking and relationships to images. Um, and I found um, this image in a 1951 Negro Digest, um, which I thought was pretty profound. Um, 
just this, this statement, the day I discovered I was colored, because I th there is a moment, I think, where each of us um, begin, maybe slowly, but sometimes overtly, recognize um, our kind of quote-unquote place in society, how others see us and how we may um, need to navigate the world. And, and, and I love this gesture of the kid um, on the right being kind of his, his pondering kind of his, you know, his, his, uh, his existence. Um, and, and, but it says a lot to me about how, you know, much of what we learn about ourselves does come through um, the outside world. And um, I was reading a book called Everything But the Burden, um, and an essay in it by Carl Hancock Ruck says, there's something called black in America and there's something called white in America, and I know them when I see them, but I will forever be unable to explain the meaning of them because they're not real, even though they have a very real place in my daily way of seeing, a fundamental relationship to my ever-evolving understanding of history, and a critical place in my relationship to humanity. Um, and I often always say if I could ever plagiarize an artist statement, this would probably be it. Because I've always been, I've struggled with this notion of blackness, you know, and especially the notion of whiteness, um, especially since I've never actually met a black person and actually never met a white person. And kind of the, the fact that we speak about things in these binaries that don't describe any of us physically um, and there are moral connotations that also don't exist. But also it almost ignores the fact that the majority of the people on the planet aren't black or white, they're Asian. Um, and how th this, and how, not, not really, <laughs> but also how having been to Southeast Asia and, 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 to, and Eastern Asia, how they really span the spectrum from black and white in their skin complexions and kind of really thinking about all this complexity and living in Paris, um, especially last year and having lived in a different part of England, um, realizing um, how a lot of the issues that we in the United States kind of see um, as central to our lives kind of are, are read and related to differently um, by, by others. Um, but also looking at kind of how popular culture represents kind of notions of race and identity. Uh, this is uh, an, an advertisement from um, uh, American Apparel, which I thought was pretty fascinating, this representation of Africa um, through this, or, or this, this um, advertisement. Um, from the, the mid-2000s and thinking about the roots of advertisements like this and kind of how they navigate in society and what they talk about as our history. Um, and how many people here know who this person is? Is anyone? So uh, does anyone want to guess kind of what this person might have done as a profession? Anyone? Keith? No? Zoe, anybody want to guess? Oh, this, this, the tailor, go on, anybody else? Everyone has ideas. <laughs> a lawyer, musician. Well, that's the closest. His name was uh, Burt Williams, and he was actually one of the most prominent um, entertainers in the United States um, of his time from Caribbean um, ancestry, but this really fascinating how um, he um, chose to represent himself as a person off stage and behind, and behind stage, and how uh, the world celebrated him as this kind of uh, his, for his ability to uh, perform authentic blackness, you know, as as um, people would have liked to believe it. And I'm really fascinated with this kind of duality of even a, a, a black person performing blackness that's 
acceptable in contrast to the way that he saw himself, but also thinking about um, the status quo and, and how we're living in an age where uh, times are changing. And the status quo that you know, most of us grew up with were uh, these uh, people, especially in, in, the, in the physical realm, people of African descent kind of dominating uh, popular sports for the later half of the 20th century and um, you know, a, a, a European descended male kind of dominating you know, pretty much everything else. Um, and how kind of in the past 10 years we've seen this dramatic uh, uh, flipping of the script that kind of no one's really ever thought talked about this how their um, th this idea of the great white hope has come through um, the Klitschko brothers in in heavyweight boxing um, and um, how this kind of multi-ethnic um, president of the United States kind of what that says to about how future generations will understand the relationship to um, history and power and and um, identity and someone was telling me a story when I showed them this uh, how uh, I think they were telling their child about kind of slavery um, and, and um, it was it was a during Black History Month they were telling their, their children about slavery and how people of African descent were brought over and, and you know and how um, and the Emancipation Proclamation etc cetera, etc cetera. and the child was like six or seven years old and asked um, well was there a black president then? <laughs> because in that child's mindset, you know, they, it didn't even occur to them that there couldn't possibly have been a quote-unquote black president because of the world that they live in. And so thinking about how um, things that we already kind of took, take for granted, new generations will kind of look totally differently and not necessarily be able to grasp the world that even we have come so um, familiar with. Um, but I've also really been thinking about um, how uh, commodity culture has affected the lives specifically of African Americans because so many of us were brought over to kind of help fuel and create you know American commodity that helped make the country so wealthy and one of the books I was reading by uh, was by uh, Walter Lefebvre and it's called Michael Jordan and the new trans global economy or something to that extent and it's talks about how Nike went from being a 10 million dollar company in 1984 when Michael Jordan signed on to a 10 billion dollar company when he um, retired in 2003 and how so many different industries around the world kind of um, expanded their market and grew through kind of um, the branding of Michael Jordan. And one of the quotes in the book that fascinated me was uh, by Stanley Crouch and he says, in 1960 if white girls in the suburbs had posters of a Negro that dark on their wall there would have been hell to pay. Uh, that kind of racial paranoia is not true in the country now. Today you have girls who are Michael Jordan fanatics and their parents don't care. And I was thinking about this, how basically in almost being born in the segregated South and, and basically within the first 25 years of his life, he went from being a very kind of charged, really designated uh, um, figure in American society to being a trans-global, transnational, uh, transracial figure. And how that kind of happened through um, his um, commodity and, how, and thinking about how his ancestors were brought here uh, brought there, through here, <laughs> um, um, by, uh, you know, and, and sorry. <coughs> um, well, I was thinking about that quote, and, and basically I just took that quite literally. And I, and I started thinking about the history of lynching and thinking about um, how someone of his stature might have been treated at a different period of time. So I created this piece called, um, um, 
hang time circa 1923, and I was started really thinking about logos and how and their commodity, um, how they um, are almost our generation's hieroglyphs because they're embedded with a level of meaning and, and currency that kind of is hard to put its finger on, but it's so ubiquitous. And so I started to think about how I could use um, this Michael Jordan Jumpman logo as an archetype to talk about other things. So I made uh, this one about cotton, um, using the American cotton logo and thinking about uh, this figure uh, during Middle Passage, you know, uh, choosing to commit suicide. I call this one um, the original slam dunk. Um, and then uh, I, I was thinking how I could use these other logos that aren't necessarily um, racial, American racially codified, but actually have kind of been embraced by African American community to, um, and, and so I used uh, this is the polo logo and, um, and the NBA logo, um, and started really thinking about how black bodies were traded on a market then, um, and how they're traded on, in a market um, now, and kind of how um, the, it's fascinating that the descendants of slaves within the United States are still kind of very much measured and traded, at least in the highest, most exp on the most wealthy market, in the same way that their ancestors were, and having met um, athletes that were like in the NCAA, NFL com uh, combine, this guy was telling me about how like they measure his thigh, they check your teeth, you know, like every aspect of your body is measured. And I started thinking about how in, um, and especially team sports, you know, a lot of things that you might want in a good athlete um, are a lot of things you might want in a good slave, like where you might want them to be smart, but not quote unquote too smart. You want them to be able to follow orders. You want them to be strong. Um, you wanted them to be disciplined um, and, sub and submissive in thinking about these kind of relationships. And so I, I started using a lot of um, slave posters and, and kind of combining them with, um, with these graphics that reference um, African Americans. But also started to think about how advertising is the most ubiquitous uh, language in the world, having traveled to like Cuba and Peru and South Africa and all over and having seen the same symbols everywhere, especially the Nike logo. Um, but started thinking about how I could probably use this language and how it's actually advertising is this underused language where it speaks to all of us, but so few of us use it to speak back. Um, and I was looking at this image of uh, the slave ship Brooks that was used here in England in the, 18, in the 1700s uh, as part of the abolition movement and started thinking how I could maybe appropriate the language of the absolute, in the 90s, um, in, in the absolute vodka campaign to talk about um, kind of what I see as a construction of a quote unquote black identity, where you take people from uh, thousands of cultures and worldviews and languages over this huge continent um, with hundreds of millions of people and, you know, um, basically pack, kidnap them, package them into ships, send them halfway across the world and tell them they're all the same. And, and 500 years later, their descendants are still trying to figure out kind of who they are. Uh, that's what I call absolute power, this idea of a, a kind of a monolithic or homogeneous um, black identity, um, which as I've traveled through Angola to Senegal to, um, um, to, Ga to Ghana and South Africa, recognizing how even in today different, you know, the people are and see themselves in relationship to one another, out, let alone the Caribbean, uh, the United States and England and France. Um, but uh, so, so with these works, uh, I've 
you know, I've tried to readdress certain things. So this is uh, an image from, uh, you know, uh, Josiah Wedgwood for, uh, that was used um, during the abolition movement. And it's uh, an image of, I imagine someone having just survived the Middle Passage. And he says, I know I ain't the only one up for draft this year, but Lord, Lord, please let me get picked in the first round. And please, please let me keep my chains. And, and how kind of, as we uh, move from one kind of um, um, constraining information um, a situation to perhaps a liberating situation, how we still want to hold on to some of the things that kind of chain us, but also thinking about how for so many African-American men, especially the idea of ascending is chained to ascending through sports and entertainment. Um, and how, uh, and so I created this piece called uh, Basketball and Chain, which um, really sp speaks to that quite literally for me, but in the language of advertising. Um, and then I, I started thinking about how slaves were branded as a sign of ownership and how today um, so many of us uh, brand ourselves. And actually, increasingly, we live in a branded society where, you know, with my Apple computer or, you know, whatever other things that we have, um, they say things about us. But African Americans have proven to be kind of uh, a great testing ground and, and billboard for um, making things commodifiable. So, you know, one of the, the and, and thinking about how uh, young African American men, especially, kind of have been known to pay to become the best advertisers that anyone could ask for. But, uh, um, and thinking about, um, so this is another piece, Branded Head, um, and um, started to kind of, again, build off of this idea of. Uh, how I could use um, logos, almost as pictograms, to tell new stories with the, the Johnny Walker and Jordan and, and, um, piece. Um, and then more recently, uh, one of the more recent photo series I did was um, not necessarily related to ha uh, slavery, but because I, I think lynching and slavery are too frequently um, conflated. Um, but thinking about kind of uh, the, the black body, um, black male body as um, a spectacle, a public spectacle, and, and lynchings in the United States, and thinking about how uh, these bodies, which are especially, I guess I was thinking about uh, the 80s and 90s when people were, one of the stylistic things for basketball players to do during a slam, slam dunk was to hang on the rim, and thinking about um, that spectacle of, uh, uh, and how it's not too far-fetched to think that some of the relatives of people who were lynched are, you know, are actually current day NBA players and thinking about kind of how, uh, so there's a piece called Strange Fruit, but also thinking about um, how perhaps the noose is overused as kind of a threat, you know, within the United States and how maybe we could use the, the I basically created a, a scenario where these athletes played basketball using the uh, noose as their net. Um, so in a sense, they, they, they chose to dominate it and it was the, the, the object or the goal rather than the threat. And then thinking about um, the history of, uh, of sharecropping in uh, the United States where, uh, you know, uh, the descendants of slaves kind of basically worked for, you know, almost as indentured servitude for, for, for a long period of time. And and how in college basketball, college football, this is a, the, um, the, 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 the jersey of Ole Miss, which is a college football team, and how um, 
NCAA sports in the United States is a multi-billion dollar industry that's fueled um, predominantly on the backs of, on free labor but from, of the descendants of slaves who are traded again in very, sim very similar ways. And, how, and really kind of thinking about this kind of amazing correlation between, um, if not slavery, but definitely sharecropping um, between, that's kind of unspoken and that if someone even, it's illegal to give someone a pair of jeans who's a, a, you know, a college athlete, you know, and if they break their wrist or break their ankle, their entire careers are, are over. So they're, they're, you know, they're useless much the same way of, uh, you know, uh, certain um, animals in, in other sports. Um, and, and so in, in this in building off this is football and chain but I also did a series where I was thinking about credit cards as a form of indentured servitude and how um, increasingly in our society um, you need a credit card to do anything. But if you, um, and even if you don't really use it, you still are charged. And so I, I created uh, these, these pieces. This is uh, a, a credit card that I actually had, the Chase MasterCard, which I thought was pretty fascinating having um, found that Chase ha did have some relationship to uh, supporting um, the slave trade. Um, and um, yeah, so this is the, the, the Chase MasterCard, uh, the Afro-American Express uh, that I, I created. Um, and, and then thinking about how uh, the pop, the bling-bling the culture of the, the early 21st century and uh, how um, Again, the descendants of slaves are kind of basically the, the billboards for another kind of uh, taking um, this gold, which has always been a commodity, but taking it to the celebration of it to a new level and how basically effectively their cousins in different parts of the world are, are being underpaid and under mistreated as they mine um, this commodity and, and thinking about how I could kind of comment on that with these, these uh, these objects of bling. And then there's the door of no return in Gory Island, um, Senegal. And so I made this piece, Absolute No Return. Um, and then I, I don't know where this came from, <laughs> but it, it's a piece, I, it's really part of my quest for a relationship to Africa as that's identifiable. So I created this piece called um, uh, Africa America, A Place to Call Home. Because as an African American, so many times I've been confronted in situations where people ask me where I'm from, and I'll say New York, and they'll say, "Well, where are you from before that?" And I'm like, yeah, "Virginia, I guess." <laughs> they say, "What about before that?" I'm like, "I, I, I have no idea." Um, and so um, I, I, I kind of wanted a symbol that could represent kind of my relationship to um, Africa in a way that I could kind of validate. And so this was a, a place to call home. Uh, I also had a great opportunity um, to work in a museum archive at the Wadsworth Athenaeum um, in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, where they have the Amistad collection, which is a collection of, of uh, kind of black artifacts, <laughs> which are kind of strange once you see what some of them are. Most of them are um, from the early 20th century and late 19th century. Uh, but the artifacts that I found in the archive were things like this which is an ashtray, um, or this, which is um, an, a letter opener and a pencil, uh, and this, 
and this. And, I, and I, so I kind of found this, these things fascinating to be in a quote unquote black archive um, as these kind of these souvenirs and these um, things. This is made out of cardboard, which is I think really important to consider because that means if it's made out of cardboard, it can't be that old and it's still standing. Um, but what do you all think this, this object is? What is it? What, say that again? A target? Anybody else? We got to get in the mindset of this time, you know, smoking Sambo. Yeah, that's what I thought. Anybody else? Celeste? No. Well, actually, you probably can't read it. It says, directions for use, push cigar into Sambo's mouth, uh, light fuse and get away. Um, you know, don't pick up after approaching the tip fireworks company. So basically what one was supposed to do is put a firecracker in his mouth and then watch his head explode. Um, and I was really fascinated by these objects because they, you know, first of all, like, I'm yet to find anyone from the modern day that could actually even conceive of that because, and I think about social conditioning and how, who was this object made for? You know, um, probably not people of African descent. Um, Probably not little girls, probably, I mean, I'm assuming not older men, but likely, um, you know, young um, European descended boys. Um, and, and kind of how I was really trying to understand, like, where could this level of resentment come from? And, and looking, and basically looking at these objects, I started to really think about um, how, you know, when was it funny for a black kid baby and, and crocodiles, you know, would that have been funny during slavery? You know, because if, if your property is eaten by a crocodile, that's not funny at all. You know, that, that'll affect the bottom line. And started to think about kind of how a lot of these um, kind of passive or subconscious kind of acts or toys of aggression towards um, African, people of African descent probably are a result of, um, this is my own speculation, but uh, of you know, members of the lower income, um, quote unquote, white community um, needing to, to deal with kind of having been lowered in status, perhaps, but, or by, you know, at least if you were a, a poor immigrant from Italy or Ireland or England or Scotland that, or Germany, that the, the least that you could have is that you were better than them. And you know, now you have, they're being put on the same level as you. And looking at kind of some of the objects that kind of came out of that time, and these are projects, objects of the Industrial Re um, Revolution or post, because they are mass distributed objects. This is one board game called Little Black Sambo, which had something in it that was very important for me to notice. Maybe it's, I'm not sure if it reads the same in England, but it says Little Black Sambo. And it's a board game where Sambo starts off, you know, being uncivilized in the jungle, and he's playing with his tiger, and then as you go through the game, he basically winds up learning how to, to dress, he gets clothes, he gets an umbrella, he becomes a dandy, he has, he's eating uh, flapjacks. Um, so this is like kind of the, the progression. And one of the things that was hidden in there is, is because is that, you know, where are tigers from? India. India, right. 
And so I was like, maybe I shouldn't be offended because maybe it's talking about a little Indian kid, you know, and not me. Because, you know, oh, there is this way in which, you know, obviously the, in blackness, you know, African, people of Africa and the people of, um, of, of, of different parts of Asia are conflated. And I do find that to be really kind of fascinating with in, in this idea of like kind of this conflation of, you know, a black race. But also one of the things I learned is obviously blackness is different depending on what country you are in. But also I realized something else very important that most of us know subconsciously but don't really acknowledge enough is that, you know, be, other than Abraham Lincoln and John Brown, you know, uh, there were millions of white people um, who were a major part of quote unquote black history, you know, and, and think this is a, a, a actually a, a, a past um, f from um, Charles Sumner that he'd written for a, a servant of his during the Civil War, which um, I find that to be, because so basically this is a, someone who's traveling around the DC area um, in 1864 um, and needs this pass of identification from uh, you know, a, a, a white man in order to be f designated free. Um, but Charles, so I'd found the, 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 the letter one place and I found the bus somewhere else and I thought they were interesting to be, again, in this archive of black objects. And I didn't know enough about him until I, I, I'd read a little bit more and found that he was one of the fiercest kind of op opponents of slavery to the degree that he was beaten in, in the um, House of Congress, um, nearly to his death, apparently, for his position. Um, and, and thinking about kind of how, when we talk about a black history, we frequently ostracize, um, we, we take it out of a context, you know, that kind of really is important to see as a, a greater human rights and, 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 and historical struggle towards uh, uh, um, intellectual and spiritual evolution. And then other objects I found that and I wish I had a blown up picture of this, but can you read it? It says alligator bait, which it was in And the part I like that I think is most fascinating, it says um, copyright, I can't remember, copyright so-and-so studio, 1896, which is just so amazing that, you know, we're thinking about the copyright and like how, you know, someone was just like basically, you know, black babies and alligator, that's, you know, if you, if you take that, I'm going to sue you. <laughs> you know, like, that's my intellectual property. Um, because it was so normal, and, and it calls into question, what things that we take for granted as normal today that future generations will look back and be like, what were, you know, who were these people and why am I related to them? <laughs> you know, um, and then there were things in, in other archives, like this sign that I find fascinating, you know, no niggers, no Jews, no dogs. Um, and how, you know, at some point, those were kind of basically equal. Um, and, and what that means and how fast or maybe how slowly things changed. But also in the museum, they had a different portion of the museum, I should say. They had, you know, it's an encyclopedic museum, one of the oldest in the United States. Um, and they had a, a, you know, cabinet of curiosities of Wunderkammer. And uh, one of the historians really spoke to me about how this, these cabinets were basically like, TVs of the 16th century that like if you were really rich and you had people over you could just like pull show them stuff that you had and like talk about it forever and marvel about like the stories that came with it and all these things about the world and so I kind of started to think about how these objects kind of related to that for me and and how they were almost all objects uh, um, from 
the post-slavery um, period. So I created this cabinet of curiosities called um, Curious Objects from the Demise of, a, of the Peculiar Institution. You know, kind of all of these objects kind of, that kind of um, really are loaded with the politics and the, and the, um, the thinking of that time. Um, and and um, some of I wish I'd kind of shown a few more of them, but, um, but then I realized again, like maybe we're not so far ahead, you know, with kind of these like objects that are kind of mass produced that kind of represent an, an ancient African past and this um, Harry Tubman uh, action figure or these, this Michael Jackson figure, but like how these kind of other kind of racially codified objects that are created from when our time might be read by future generations. So I made this um, cabinet, which is uh, curious objects from the now yet to be understood, which really kind of speaks to this kind of, it tries to put into to context how we will be looked at and judged for the things that we kind of create. Um, and then in the museum, they had this amazing postcard collection, um, which I had really kind of undervalued the importance in, of postcards and what they say about us, who, because postcards basically, which many of you already know, but they were kind of the first mass distributed, um, you know, images in the world, but also kind of what it meant, the postcard you chose, who you sent it to, said something about you, your values, um, the society, and I, and I really um, was fascinated in kind of some of the things that were written on the back of them, some of the tropes of uh, uh, black boys and white cotton was one of them. But on the, on the backs of some of them, there'd be things like this, uh, Christmas 1900 with, uh, with love and wishes for a very jolly Christmas and New Year. This is our noble band of niggers. I myself am, will, am not in the picture as you will see, <laughs> which, you know, I don't know, I think it's funny. <laughs> but then, uh, you know, and then in, in Florida, again, you find these, these, these tropes for advertising in Florida. You wonder about the postcards we send now, but it says, you know, how come, honey, come down, we's waiting for you. And then on the backs, it'll read, um, we're now at Palm Beach, a lovely two-room apartment in the beautiful, uh, it's beautiful, 114 degrees in the sun today. Uh, so kind of some of these really kind of banal messages on the, where they're on the front of them, they're so loaded. Um, and then um, this is kind of New Britain, Connecticut, um, an advertisement for shoes, which again, to me is so brilliant. They're like, you may not be, now that it's, it's after slavery, so you can't have a black person just carry you, but you can have these shoes, which are almost like having two black babies carry you. You know, like how this kind of idea of, of, uh, of comfort, you're, you're subconsciously comforted by this kind of imaginary labor of, uh, of, uh, of, of black children. And, kind of, and again, that these were not, these were just the normal things that people would, would send in, 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 in the post. And so, and one another of the tropes was uh, this Negro cabin trope that I guess part of the tourists would go to the South and see these cabins and look at the authentic black life of the South. Um, and so I created this piece that says, Greetings from the Sunny South. And on the outside of it, there's all of these postcards that um, are kind of what 
mainstream society was projecting on the black community. And then you look through the window, you see this um, poster for um, Uncle Tab's Tom's Cabin. But then as again, as on, on the inside, you know, one of the other things I found in the collection were these images that African Americans were making of themselves and of each other, which, you know, told a very different experience and, and story about black life and black representation. Um, and how the, the stark contrast was astounding to me. Um, so on the inside of the cabin, you could read some of the, um, the postcards, but also see the images. And I think it really speaks to the, the, the notion of double consciousness that you know, um, Du Bois, uh, at the, around the same time, wrote about, um, where it's like you know what outside, what society is saying about you and, and all these things. But at the same time, in order to keep yourself sane, you must kind of create your own images and, and, and tell your own stories. And I think this is really kind of a really fascinating kind of way of trying to rethink of and re uh, consider the archive because unfortunately more most of the stuff that's in the archive will never be seen by most of us so we're, the stories that we know or understand about history are really going to be so limited um, and, and and as I walk through having been a, being a person of African descent who's been educated in the West going to museums like the Metropolitan Museum of Art where uh, and all of these other muse encyclopedic museums where there's all of these images of Europeans and very few images of, of people of African descent. Uh, but I, I, I've always admired, I'm sure everyone here is admired at the beauty of the frames. And I realize how framing does a lot to create validity in our society. I mean, I think we're pretty simple species that if we see something in a nice frame, <laughs> you know, it must be important. And so what happens when we see the majority of things that we see are of Europeans in nice frames, they're inherently more valuable. Um, and so one of the things I did is I started to look at um, kind of some of the images in the postcards and kind of use some of the kind of out of work frames in the, in the museum's archive to kind of post put them in that context. This is probably my favorite of, of them, which was an, a postcard that I found, which it just says so much to me that someone would um, make this image of themselves, circa, this is after World War I, um, he's wearing a World War I soldier's hat, but he's wearing his Sunday's best, he's got his rifle, standing what I, on what I presume to be his land. And this is not an image of the rural south that we're familiar with, of a Afri person of African descent. And what I really, 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 really loved about this postcard, not just the image, was what was written on the back, which, you know, which you know says more is more poetic and more fascinating than anything that I could ever <laughs> conjure, but that if it was not that person, but someone in that of that era really felt the need to remind us, you know, that the history is not you know his, you know history is not history; it's his story. It's always someone's story, and so whose story are, is are, are are we telling and are we sharing? Um, what I did in my presentation was to kind of have it engraved um, in, st in, in, a, in stone and presented in front of it. Um, but to speak again to the power of the frames, this was another, this is my favorite frame. Like, who is gonna be in this frame and look silly? You know, like this is like the best frame of all time. You know, and, 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 think, and looking at the man in the postcard, on the back of the postcard, what it read is, uh, Battling a, 
in, well, it's July 4th, so Independence Day, 1913, battling about in this unfriendly world, I'm now weighing 195 pounds and preach every Sunday in this city. Yours, JMB. And this is, you know, um, a, a around the dawn of the, the Great Migration where African Americans um, started to kind of leave um, their, you know, the plantation and leave the rural South to go to different places and thinking about how some, and he's wearing a, a Mason's pin, so he's uh, how basically this person has gone off to this new world and he's basically, you know, he, it's hard, it's difficult, but he has faith and in and, and how, in a sense, he is a knight, you know, and, and the fact that it was written on Independence Day, kind of this other history was so, so telling to me. Uh, this is another one about a woman who's, who founded a school. Um, I, I did frame it differently, but I do love, uh, it says, uh, hope you are all well. Um, she talks about starting the school, but it says, um, hope you are, are, are all well. How are the twins and the, and the A's and LP? Love to all. Bessie LaCruz. I mean, I, it's just, you know, I just, I love seeing these stories. And, and, and or this is a, um, a frame for, that was of the, like the Duke of Orleans, uh, or I don't know, the Queen. I don't know, somebody read French better than me. Given by the Queen to Monsieur Garon. Thank you. You, of course, people read French better than me. The lady next to you is French. <laughs> 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 no, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. But it's um, I, yeah, your eyes are better than mine too. It says um, old slave block in old St. Louis Hotel in New Orleans. The colored woman standing on the block that she was sold for fifteen hundred dollars in the same block when she was a little girl. Um, so kind of looking at these. Um, the, the stories in this reframing, but also um, a postcard from um, 19, the, one, the, one, the back of this one said, it was, from it was an image from 1941, well, it was copyrighted in 1941, and on the back, uh, it was postmarked 1948, and it said, I guess it's still like that in some parts these days. Um, but thinking about, um, about social conditioning again, where, um, this man is, and this is Dover, Delaware, um, the first state, um, and how the, the whipping post, the tradition of the whipping post, um, but looking at how these, this audience of mostly young white boys um, who are likely to still, still be alive, and if they're not alive, their children and grandchildren are still alive, but how kind of seeing the trauma of seeing someone <coughs> kind of treated in this way, but how that affected their own psychology of how to relate to people of African descent and subconsciously how they raised their children. And I, I thought to myself for a moment, well, well, maybe this guy was a criminal. Maybe he, did, maybe he did the wrong thing. But then I realized that he was living in a society where it was even illegal. It was illegal for a quote unquote black and white person to get married, you know, much less cross a state line together. So kind of in such an unjust world, could there ever be a form of justice, um, and, and, and kind of what does that say? Uh, and then I came across this, uh, this um, what is this, a button, um, in, um, but turned into a pendant in the Metropolitan Museum of Arts collection, 
which was a button that was used during abolition. It's a, a white hand over a black hand holding a Bible, which um, I guess one of the things, as we do today, sometimes ways people would support a movement were by buying these objects, um, and, and obviously, you know, tending to be wealthy people buying these objects and, and maybe wearing it on their lapel, wearing it. Um, and so, but it's, it's kind of stowed away in this old museum's archive, which you have to get asked to get access to and all this stuff. So I realized that basically whenever you call something art, people will talk about it and think about it in a very different way, much more sophisticated way. So I actually um, just basically made a bigger version of it. Um, and, um, and, and all of a sudden it kind of opens the door to pondering uh, in, in very different ways. Um, some of these, um, so kind of also what it says then and what it says now, but I also just love the kind of the exquisiteness of it. Um, and, I, and then I started to actually make other buttons that are, are kind of um, related to kind of the, the history of um, African Americans in the South. Uh, anybody know who the greatest is? Who's the greatest? How amazing is it that someone who is a descendant of slaves from segregated South, um, with not the greatest education, has named himself the greatest and will forever be the greatest? And it's like he didn't say he was the greatest boxer, you know, you know, the greatest of all time, you know, which assumes that there's only one that's like a little bit higher than him, which I'm assuming is God, you know, but the audacity of that statement. Um, and so I, I, I uh, was fast astounding to me, you know, and how, you know, he did with that belief what he was able to do. Um, and even as he, we've seen him deteriorate, he's still the greatest. Um, and so this is kind of an audacious object, rep, you know, for such an audacious, audacious statement. Um, this is um, a, another piece inspired by um, actually Blind Memory by Marcus Wood, where I was actually just looking at some of the woodblocks that, that they had, that he had in the book, and um, scanning them. And as I scanned this, scanned a few of them, there were these moray, these, these color moray patterns, these rings that came um, from just having pushed this black and white image onto the scanner. Um, and I almost felt like I was looking at the aura of these blocks, so I started to kind of make them, um, I, I made it in a, a 3D format. But also thinking about um, the Underground Railroad and the, pa and, and the quilts that were used or, or, or argued to be used um, to send messages to escaped slaves um, or escaping slaves um, that were hung outside houses. And um, I, this idea of a, of, a, of a code that would al allow you to access a greater freedom uh, I found fascinating. So thinking about how college, again, college sports and college uh, what they represent to so many um, African-American families about this message, this opportunity towards freedom. So making a quilt out of these basketball jerseys was, was this gesture, but also made a series of um, uh, photographs using different patterns. This is a pattern called um, flying geese, which, uh, I, which is the pattern that's in the, in the middle. Um, and the image was taken of or by A.P. Bedeau, who's a, a photograph, a photographer um, who photographed in, uh, in Tuskegee, Alabama, um, around the time of Booker T. Washington. And you could see the photographer and probably the second arrow on the left. Um, and this is, and what I, and people would congregate in these, 
moments to, to listen to orators like Booker T. Washington speak about kind of a, a new black sustainability opportunity. And uh, many of these people, you know, were the, that generation who left the South onto a greater or presumed greater, better life. Um, and so it's really about this migration and, and the poetry of the flying geese. This is another one um, about um, washing and an amusing image of a, of a baptism. Um, but then also um, kind of starting to think about, I was in an exhibition um, called When Attitudes Become Form, Become Attitudes. And it was a, a, a based off of another exhibition of those actually of minimalist art. And this is but one of the ideas that came up to me was how could I represent the attitude of the black power movement, kind of the earnestness of it, and sometimes the absurdity of it. Um, and, and so I created this, um, this fist um, bow and arrow that kind of um, spoke, it's, it's, it's incredibly fragile, but it's in, in, and, and fierce at the same time, and, and, and beautiful. Um, and then relaying back to the, um, that idea of how do you give voice to, um, I always struggle when I look at images of lynching and uh, public abuse, because um, I, I, I can't help but to, I notice that I'm, there's a part of me that's bearing witness, but there's a part of me that's just gawking. And how do you, is there a responsible way to show those images or to talk about those experiences and pay respect to the others? Um, and so this is a piece called What Goes Without Saying, um, and where, where, you know, hopefully we're called to um, hear the, the echoes of their, their voices in, in, um, in, that, in this piece. Um, and then relating to um, an image of um, Ernest Withers from 1968, the <coughs> Memphis Sanitation Workers March, um, where uh, in support of it, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Um, and how I found it so amazing that it was necessary in the country that I was born, just eight years before I was born, for people to stand together and affirm their humanity collectively by holding signs that say, I am a man. Uh, especially because being a member of the hip hop generation, the statement I grew up with was, I am the man. And I was really fascinated how it went from being a really collective statement um, during um, segregation to a very selfish um, or, um, statement, you know, after integration and kind of, and so I thought about how I could remix um, and rethink that statement. And so I started with the United States Constitution when African-Americans were counted as three-fifths of a human being. Um, so it's I am three-fifths of a man. Am I, am I a man, thinking like, am I not, am I not a man of a, a brother? Uh, I am a man, then I be a man, black vernacular English. Um, a man I am, Dr. Seuss. <laughs> be a man, thinking 1968, people volunteering for the war. I'm your man of Vietnam War. Am, a man I, I am, man MIA, thinking about Sojourner Truth, ain't I a woman? And uh, the women's liberation movement, I am a woman. But the last line I really see as a poem um, it says, I'm the man, who's the man? You the man, what a man. I am man, I am human, I am many. I am, am I, I am, I am, I am a man. And, and to me that, that perhaps it speaks to this greatest evolution that um, any of us can have and realize that our greatest gift is our consciousness. 
that like, you know, with just by believing, thinking about Muhammad Ali or thinking about Stephen, Stephen Hawking, how believing in us, <laughs> in ourselves, that little thing can, can, can transcend so much more than validating ourselves based off of anyone else's standards of value, beauty, quality, uh, et cetera. Um, and so I'm just gonna leave on um, t showing you an, uh, one last piece that was in this exhibition, uh, my last exhibition at Jack Shaman Gallery called um, uh, Black Righteous Space, which is kind of an ode to the oratory um, kind of legacy of African-American and Afro-Caribbean um, um, orators and musicians um, in thinking about how um, their, their spin on, on um, how it, there is almost a space that's designated for the descendants of slaves to speak earnestly uh, on behalf of those who've been persecuted, mistreated, uh, exploited. Uh, but what happens is that I've used the colors of the um, rebel flag, the uh, Dixie flag, the flag of the Confederate, and I changed the colors of that, red, white, and blue, to the colors of the um, African-American liberation movement, uh, red, black, and green. Um, and there's a microphone in it because uh, you'll see how it works in a second, but basically, um, well, I'll just show it. Um, but I just have to, how does this work? I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to a group last night, Nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-asserted manhood his own emancipation proclamation. Don't let anybody take your manhood. Be proud of our heritage is somebody said earlier tonight, we don't have anything to be ashamed of. Somebody told a lie one day. They couched it in language. They made everything black, ugly, and evil. Look in your dictionary and see the synonyms of the word black. It's always something degrading and low and sinister. Look at the word white, it's always something pure. Ah, but I want to get the language right tonight. I want to get the language so right that everybody here will cry out, yes, I'm black, I'm proud of it, I'm black and beautiful. So 
the way the piece works, it's called Black Righteous Space, and basically any noise that happens is activated. So what you're looking at now is the sound of my voice. And so uh, vi visitors to the show would hear these speeches and hear the songs, but then um, intermittently there'd be blank spaces and then they could activate this, this space of, um, of, of importance. So on that note, thank you all very, very much.